Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. I'm located in Kansas City, Missouri. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Anderson, Dr. David A. Anderson, also known as Sokope. In 1999, he was featured on National Public Radio celebrating African-American storytelling. He was a presenter at the 1994 Public Library Association's 50th anniversary celebration in Atlanta, Georgia. He co-directed the 18th annual National Black Storytelling Conference and Festival in 2009. St. Pope portrayed Frederick Douglass in Leeds, England, doing commemoration of Douglass's 150th anniversary stay in that city. Well, tonight he's going to be with us, that is Dr. Anderson as Shields Green, one of five African Americans that accompanied um, John Brown on the raid at Harper's Ferry. Are you there, Shields? Yes, sir. I'm here, and uh, uh, I didn't know all you were coming this way, but uh, you say he wants to hear my side of the story, huh? Yes, sir, we that do. That sure is something. Yeah, that sure is something. Because I ain't figured no, anybody want to hear me talk. See, I don't talk too good, you know. So you all have to excuse the way I talk, because uh, see, whilst I was coming up, there was no time to con- convert, you know, talk. Like folks like you do, so I reckon I'm I'm maybe 24, 25 year old and can't read, but I can write my name because Miss Miss Rosetta Douglas, Frederick uh, Douglas' daughter, he she tried to teach me to read and write. The best I could do was to learn how to write my name. Now there, there's some confusion about my name, and the confusion got to do. With me being smaller than some men, I ain't too tall, but as you can see, I am a uh, a, a built man. See, the fact is, some on the plantation calls me runt because of my short size. The slave masters always want big field hands. Bigger the hand, the more work they figure they're going to get out of them. But I want you all to know... I give the master a good day's work every day. But uh, they sound so small, they decided to give me the name Emperor. Guess that make them feel better. I always want to determine for myself. So when I get to where I could do it, I've taken a name myself. That's how I get to be called Shields, Shields Green. The name I'd taken for myself. Yeah, 
after a while I'm by and by though I I I I get the feeling that's gotta be something more than slavery. And so I I tried to get set to get free but wasn't much of a chance. But then I I run into this year dear girl. She a slave too, name of Adeline. And I liked it hell right off. Reckon she liked me some too. After a while, we get acquainted real good, and my mind stay on Adeline instead of on killing. Me and her get permission to jump the broom. Yeah, jump the broom. Yeah, see that's that's well. There be two captive people allowed to get married. So right after us two promise to take care of one another, the elder announced us man and wife. Then us two peoples jump the broom. <laughs> yeah, me and my wife get along fine because we love each other. At a while, we we here we come up with with a baby, a little little baby, baby about that long. He ain't, ain't real big, but we love him just the way he come here. And we going on, we working and carrying on, but then it come a time I noticed that. Mouse are always down there in the quarters out of my wife talking about when she going to get another baby. When she going to get another baby? Shoot. And one day I caught the overseer. I'm putting his hand on my wife. I asked him what he was trying to do that for. I grabbed him. But, you know, two more white men grabbed hold of me. And they beat me and beat me. But that ain't the worst of it. They've taken my wife another plantation give it to some buck so the buck can get big children out of my wife and they beat me some more beat me some more and tell me I got to go back to work but I ain't going back to work till it comes to me I got to do something to make them pay for what they done done to me and my family so I Makes ten. <laughs> I go on back to work, right? I work along. As soon as they take their eye off me, here I go, lickety, 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 spit up through the fry patch. I'm gone. I, and, and and I find help along the way. I don't know where I is, but I know if you go north, you're going to get to freedom, they tell me. And after a while, I'm by and by, I get all the way to Canada. But I, I ain't satisfied. I still got to make them pay. So I come back to the United States, come through this place called New York, and it tells me about this man, Douglas, Frederick Douglas. So I get on over to this place called Rochester where I get a chance to meet this man, Douglas. And he was one time a slave too, so we get to talking. He 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 plenty smart. He knew how to read and write, and and he a big one trying to get this business of slavery turned over. So I I start being around his place and helping him and Miss Anna, that's his wife, when the freedom seekers come through. Had Tubman, she come she come bringing. Three, four, five folks through a couple of times, and then along about I 
don't know, I guess it's January 1858. Man named John Brown come to stay with the Douglas for spell. And uh, he, he planning something, but he, he, he seemed partial to me. He asked me about my upbringing and asked me about my wife and asked me what I want to do about getting rid of slavery. Then he'd gone off. But I don't know, sometime later, maybe, mm, maybe almost a year later, hear Mr. Douglas say, he heard from Brown, and Brown want him and me come down to where Brown is. I go. Now, him and Douglas get to talking. They're in this big old, old cavern, old big, big cave, like, out somewhere in, in Pennsylvania. After a while, him and Douglas stay arguing about what Brown wanted to do. Douglas said, no, it ain't right. It won't work. Douglas gone back to Rochester, but I stayed. I know it don't sound like it's going gonna to do much, but anything I can do to strike a blow at this thing called slavery, I'm up for it. And the time come when I reckon about 21 of us march on down to this place where the two rivers come together. They call it Harper's Ferry. And we storm the place. We break in. We we tie up people. We 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 we, we taking over the arsenal there, place where they keep guns and stuff for for the government. But uh, it's kind of shaky, but. Mr. Brown, he sent me another fella out to the countryside to try to round up some of the people that's in slavery there. Tell them to come on and get these guns. And we, we, we talked to maybe a hundred people. And, and some say they're ready to come. But then we hear shooting. And when we get back to the arsenal, we see that the United States Army is trying to take back Arsenal. They got a they got a colonel there named Robert E. Lee. He, he he's supposed to be in charge of everything. And I reckon he's good at what he do because after a while they're starting to break in on Mr. Brown and the folks with him. I try to ease up in there to help him but they catch me too. So now here he is, sitting in this year jail cell. They tell me that Mr. Brown done gone on to glory, that they done hanged him. So I reckon me and this boy, uh, John Copeland, he another colored boy, he, he but he's from Ohio, he's free. But looks like we're going to go to the hanging place that Mr. Brown already been to. But I ain't unhappy. I wish I could have done more to get rid of slavery. 
and I hope Mr. Douglas and his son, his wife, and that little girl, Annie, hope they continue to hold up for right and get rid of this thing called slavery. Oh, they're calling my name. I guess I got to go. Y'all keep your mind sought on freedom. Hallelujah. Uh, before you go, um, you use the term uh, buck. Could you describe to our audience what was meant by that term, a buck or a mandingo? Yeah, well, see, the slaveholders, they don't want to give us no respect. They don't care where we come from, the mandingo peoples or from the Eve peoples or whoever. They're going to call us what they want. To. A buck is like some kind of uh, hungry animal on the not eating so much, but always after the female animals. So a buck on the plantation is one that can always climb up on a woman, especially a young girl, and get her with a with a baby. And so the buck he had on this other plantation, I guess he had a reputation of being able to get babies regular. And since Adeline and me had but one, and that was a small one, the owner wanted to rush things. So did they have breeding plantations or breeding farms? Is that what was going on there? That that may that may be the case, sir. I don't I don't know. All I know is the word come down that that line was going to be put up under some buck on this other plantation. Maybe that's all that the buck did. I guess you could call it a breeding plantation, but don't make no matter to me. I'm going to the gallows, and I hope that my child will grow up free. Okay, well, we want to bless uh, Shields Green, and now we want to bring in uh, Dr. Anderson. Yes, sir. This How is are David you Anderson. Doctor? Dr. I'm, David. I, I've been around the track a couple of times. I'm old, but I, I feel uh, delighted that you would want to uh, talk with me and hear a little bit about uh, a personal hero. Uh, Though Shields Green could not write nor read, though oh, yeah. he died when he was still young without even knowing how old he was, uh, in my humble opinion, he was in a class with Frederick Douglass, who was one of the literary giants of the age, and uh, they're part of the same team. And as far as I'm concerned, Shields Green was the first casualty of the Civil War. The second would be Douglas's little girl who knew Shields and also John Brown. Because when mm -hmm. Brown lived there, he and the little girl played games and 
he showed her how to use his drawing instrument. But in the end, when she learned that green, that excuse me, that uh, brown had been hung, she wrote her father, and within a few days of her letter to her father, indicating that that brown had been hung, mm-hmm. hanged, she too died just before her eleventh birthday. How did, so how did she die? There is no firm medical diagnosis. Uh, the romantic part of me said that she died of a broken heart because she knew green, she knew brown, and she was not sure that her father was going to come back. You see, once uh, brown had been captured, the uh, authorities found in his bags uh, letters from Douglas and other information which they were going to use to incriminate him because uh, he had been such a a vocal uh, critic of the government for dragging its feet on the slavery issue. And thus a warrant was sworn out for him. And indeed, uh, the night that the armory or arsenal had been recaptured, uh, the warrant uh, was, I guess, co-signed by the sheriff in the county that Philadelphia, Philadelphia that night being the place where Frederick Douglass was making an anti-slavery speech. And uh, it would seem that a, a closet abolitionist who was also a telegrapher made a copy of the telegram and delivered it to Douglas in the dark of night. And uh, that would make his way back to Rochester through a securitous route. And his friends uh, persuaded him to leave because uh, everybody was still very, everybody, much of the nation was still very angry about the attack on Harper's Ferry. And Brown, because of his actions there and even earlier out west was considered uh, dangerous and a madman and he had got his just dessert. So so Douglas took the advice of friends and uh, using one of the routes that normally he would uh, place or have his uh, his visitors, his freedom seekers placed on he went over to Canada and subsequently to England. He was in Leeds, England, making an anti-slavery speech, um, or speeches, and probably was speaking at the time Brown was hung. So mm-hmm. his daughter, informing him via letter, uh, came as a shock, of course. But I think there was also a shock to her system because there's no indication that she was ill before that. And she was, she died within, I don't know, four or five days of her 11th birthday. So that's... What was the, what was the reaction of the Secret Six, and in addition to Garrett Smith, their reactions to the warrants that came out? Well, of course, they tried to go undercover, too. Uh, of course, they had 
uh, other kinds of uh, influence, other different than what Douglas would have, and they were somewhat protected, but uh, they were not making public statements. They were going on retreats here and there, and in short, trying to distance them, distance themselves from John Brown, and uh, it it. Uh, it, it wasn't as critical for them as it would have been for, for Douglas, uh, but nonetheless, they were uh, skittish. Uh, I don't know which which of the groups went uh, went west. I think somebody did go, go to Canada. But eventually, the furor would die down, and there would be a good deal more uh, sympathy for the... Uh, or empathy for the abolitionist cause growing as the South continued to uh, uh, be arrogant and uh, uh, make threatening gestures verbally and uh, uh, making it difficult for federal installations operating in the South to operate as they had before. So by the time Douglas got back here, uh, there was no warrant for him, and the Secret Six were also uh, in better, in, in in safe condition. What was the uh, Secret Six's involvement with Mr. John Brown? Well, they they were like the financial backers. They they uh, were all of them pretty much. So certainly Garrett Smith were well off. And they were all, uh, uh, shall we say, practicing Christians, uh, probably of the uh, Methodist persuasion, and, and Quaker. One or two of them were Quakers as well. So they didn't want any part of slavery, and they felt that the nation was damaging itself the longer it maintained uh, the situation of um, legal lies slavery, and it was essentially constitutionally protected up until the 13th Amendment uh, was ratified in 1865 after the war. And, and course, are you, you know, familiar? Had, hmm? Go ahead, I'm sorry. And, they, of course, there had been the Dred Scott decision where it was reaffirmed that uh, uh, a black man has no rights that white man is bound to respect. So, uh, in when the the Harper's Ferry incident occurred, it was uh, regarded by probably a majority of white Americans as being unjust and and uh, a, a criminal act. And John Brown got what he deserved. And, and all those that are connected with him should get the same thing. But once again, uh, the anti-slavery sentiment, the uh, the sort of um, uh, embrace of the uh, um, idea that all humans are created equal began to take more uh, effect, especially in the North, and eventually, uh, uh, I guess, prayer meetings and uh, 
and and other kinds of beings were making it possible for people to look at what slavery was doing to the country. It it drove these 21 men to that drastic action that amounted to the the siege of Harper's Ferry. But by and large, uh, that was uh, uh, minor compared to the damage many people felt that slavery was enacting on the whole nation. And what uh, role did the Dred Scott decision have relative to the Fugitive Slave Law, which then required a warrant? Uh, Did not the Dred Scott decision uh, determine that once free, you were always free? No, I would certainly wouldn't place that emphasis on it. I'm, uh, uh, what I see it as emphasizing that a black man, a black person, has no right that a white man is bound to respect. So you're not a citizen, uh, and the Constitution was never intended to uh, provide you with a citizen's right. And so the fugitive slave law, a toughening of the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, uh, you know, unleashed the uh, government in terms of the way it uh, uh, insisted that United States Marshals and other lawmen would assist slave owners in recovering their runaway property. Mm -hmm. So you got uh, a Supreme Court decision disabusing uh, black people of any thoughts about being citizens. And you got the fugitive slave law uh, putting the government at, you know, at the hand and beck and, beck and call of the slaveholders to recapture their property once they had, uh, you know, broken away from the plantation. Uh, during your performance, and it was a very excellent performance, by the way, uh, Shields Green mentioned that he was a runt baby. Yeah, and, uh, uh, what little information we, we've been able to get on him says he was small in stature. We assume uh, that this might have been a factor in um, uh, why his wife was taken away from him uh, and of course we we again this is not there's no there's no testament uh, or or strong documentation to what his life was like we have uh, created a proposition out of what we have read in other uh, the narratives of other people who have been written about and where where there was documentation. But what we know is that he was out of South Carolina. We know he got all the way to uh, Canada. And we know he came back and his footprint is right here in Rochester. Uh, he made such an impression on the people at Oberlin, Ohio, that when they erected a uh, a marker to the memory of John uh, Copeland and Sheridan Leary. Uh, I think Leary was the uncle, and and uh, and Copeland was his nephew. These are two 
uh, young men who who are residents of Oberlin, Ohio, and they are active both as in college, Oberlin College, and but they're also active in helping fugitives to escape. When Brown uh, is going about the country trying to round up men to join him in the uh, raid at Harper's Ferry, these are two that respond with great uh, energy, with great uh, determination. Uh, Leary is uh, killed outside the uh, arsenal uh, during the initial attack, I believe, whereas Copeland uh, was there along with uh, Green and several others when the arsenal was retaken. And and both he and Green were hanged on the same day. Uh, Copeland was quite literate, and there's a, a letter somewhere that he wrote to his family, mother, father, and siblings, probably hours before he was hanged, and and, and that does survive in some in uh, some printed form. Mm-hmm. But uh, now there were five. Five African Americans uh, involved yeah. in that raid, three of whom were Green, Copeland, and Leary. Uh, mm-hmm. Who were the other two? Uh, Dangerfield, Newby, and uh, I'm blocking on the other other man now, but uh, there was a guy from Canada. Newby, we know a little bit more about him because he. Uh, had a an unmailed letter in his pocket, and that was discovered when he was uh, when he was killed. And that letter was addressed to his wife, who herself was enslaved, and he was uh, uh, giving her hope that he would soon be able to come. Oh. Let me, let me back up. I guess the letter was from her to him, and she was uh, warning him to hurry up and uh, get the means by which she could be freed and be able to join him. She missed him uh, very much. And uh, uh, she was enslaved in, I think it was Virginia. Or it may Virginia. Been, How did... Uh, how did slaves get mail? That's interesting. Well, uh, it depended on the specific circumstances. Uh, the probability is uh, if she knew how to read and write, she also probably knew some, quote-unquote, free colored people, and there were some, Uh uh, or it may have even been that she was acquainted with um, some free, some white folks who had uh, compassion. But the deal is, uh, our enslaved forebears, and certainly those who would eventually become Civil War uh, Union soldiers, were not dummies. Uh, they they were lacking schooling, to be sure, but they were not dummies, and they 
would figure out how to get done within limit what they needed to have done. Uh, I am persuaded that the president, President Lincoln's eventually signing the Emancipation Proclamation had a good deal of spiritual power uh, coming from the united prayer of people of color, both those enslaved and those uh, who were nominally free, uh, because his efforts to negotiate with the South to, first of all, uh, uh, have those states that have succeeded come back into the Union uh, were his, I guess he hoped that beyond uh, the capacity for it to happen, but uh, even on that last night, December 31, 1862, uh, there was some indecision I'm persuaded to, uh, to to believe, and of course uh, he fiddled with the document the next day and made some revisions in it. But the deal is, uh, African American people, slave and free, uh, were determined to be free, and uh, I think there was a readiness to create other acts such as uh, the raid on Harper's Ferry or uh, Nat Turner's rebellion or, or uh, that the efforts of uh, Denmark Vesey uh, or Gabrielle and, and numerous others who we don't have a lot of information about. The whole... You know, you, men- you mentioned Lincoln um, mm-hmm. and, you know, he was the first postmaster general do you think there were any abolitionists uh, running post offices back in the day that might have assisted in the mail getting to those individuals who were still enslaved? I would think so. I would think so. Uh, and part of my belief that is the case is that other people in the communication business were like this. For example, uh, the man uh, John Hearn was the telegrapher in Philadelphia that hand-delivered this copy of a telegram which was addressed to the sheriff in in that county. He delivered the copy to to Douglas at great risk. Moreover, uh, before uh, Douglas departed, he sent a telegram. He, he, He crossed over into New Jersey, by the way, from Philadelphia. And he sent a telegram to the telegrapher here in Rochester who delivered it to Douglas's son. So if the telegraph operator <laughs> were of this mind, I'm, I'm persuaded to think that there were some postmasters who were of like mind. You know, you know, in the South, uh, we know that there were a lot of post offices were burned to the ground because of the abolitionist uh, yeah. literature getting out. Yeah. And uh, that would be one way to stop it. Yeah, sure. And sure. Uh, the illiteracy rate 
uh, amongst poor whites was very high. Mm-hmm. So they really didn't have a need. Uh, can you uh, repeat the name of the uh, telegraphic person that you were speaking of? In Philadelphia, yeah. it was it was John Hearn, and I John think that's so H-E-R-N. And in Rochester, the, uh, the name escapes me now, but he... He knew Douglas. In fact, when Douglas uh, first took up residence in Rochester in 1847, uh, and especially after his family arrived, he would uh, stay in a home that was close to where this uh, telegrapher lived, and they got a chance to know each other. I can't I can't bring his name up at the moment, but. Uh, was it Granville no, uh, Woods? No, no. Uh, Granville Woods would be much too young at that point, and and uh, well, we're talking about white men. Oh, okay. And okay. Um, you mentioned also um, early on and uh, about the Secret Six. Uh, providing money, and uh, was that what Brown he used that money to purchase weapons to give to his co-conspirators? And if so, what kind of weapons did he uh, purchase for his people? Do we know? Well, rifles, and uh, one thing that was prominent was uh, pikes, p i k p i k e s, which I guess is like. Uh, Long like a spear, but it has essentially a, a hatchet uh, end on it, uh, so you can jab or you can chop with it. And these were the the weapons he was going to arm the uh, enslaved people who would be who would leave the plantation and join his join his effort. He he wanted to essentially raise a guerrilla army, and by so doing, intimidate the government into uh, abolishing slavery. Uh, but he did buy uh, rifles and, and probably some uh, sidearms for for the uh, 21 men that were in his band, including the five African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And I'm also um, intrigued by the fact that the wife who was in slavery was concerned about her husband coming back to uh, get her and free her. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you happen to bring up the theme of the movie uh, Django Unchained? Did you happen to mm-hmm. see that movie? It's no, I haven't seen it. Sonic. I have. I. I would like to see it, but you know there are so many things grabbing at me. I am unable to uh, do a lot of things that like to. I don't. Probably we're going to uh, buy it when it comes out on uh, on uh, with a DVD. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I don't think I'm going to get to the theater before it, it leaves. Well, have you heard enough about it from friends to have uh, performed any kind of opinion or seen any reviews that 
that might uh, influence your opinion on the movie? Very, very limited. Very limited. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that one. Okay. Now, um, Mr. Green uh, first escaped from Canada. He mentioned he came off a plantation, but he didn't give us the name of the plantation or the state that it was located in. South Carolina, and we don't know specifically where in South Carolina, but um, apparently this came out in his his talking with uh, the Douglases. Uh and it just comes to me, the other African-American in the group was a man named, um, well, I guess I said it before, Lewis Sheridan Leary, Danger Field Newbie, John Copeland. Oh, I know who it was. Osborne Perry Anderson. He was the uh, Canadian, and he uh, escaped death. He, he, he got free. In fact, he even wrote about the incident some some years afterwards, I guess. Mm-hmm. Dr. Anderson, how did you get involved in history? Aren't we aren't we history? What <laughs> uh, <laughs> my specific interest uh, comes uh, well, sort of becoming more conscious of the fact that. Uh, you, one is helped along. One is has doors opened in terms of being able to uh, uh, listen and be respectful of people who are out there willing to be of help. Uh, and when I came to Rochester in 1956 uh, as a, a veteran, an enlisted man in the United States Air Force, I came here to attend school. I met uh, racial discrimination within the first hour and was tempted to turn around and go back from where I'd come. But Mm -hmm. uh, there were people that uh, overheard the incident and interceded. And uh, from that point on, I was able to stay and and meet people like uh, uh, Ms. Navonia Daniels Caldwell, who... Uh, was able to bring me down to First Baptist Church uh, and her husband. Uh, and so given that, it makes one wonder, well, how did people in earlier generations get through the maze of discrimina- discrimination, the walls of discrimination that were erected against them? Uh, I grew up uh, during the uh, 30s, 40s, and and by the time I'm I'm 18 when I enlisted in the Air Force in 1948, so I've lived in a time where there were restrictions uh, that are now gone, but more importantly, uh, I've encountered people, mostly black people, but not always, who were willing to extend a hand. These generally were people who settled. They may have migrated from somewhere, but when uh, I met them, they had settled. 
when you're settled, meaning when you've got both feet planted, you can help. You can go to either side to help. So uh, we have these, uh, this uh, in in my background, and thus I wondered uh, about the uh, little anecdotes and even stories that my daddy told me when I was a little boy about his parents. I'm an only child, and uh, why can't I have a brother, Daddy? Well, mm-hmm. it's not going to work that way. Well, did you have a brother? Yes, but they were much older than me, son. Uh, I had, uh, and they were going to describe his, what am I, to his half-brothers, because his mother and father had both lost their spouses. So a widow marries a widower. They're both at over 40 years of age, I'm told. And my father is the only uh, issue of that union. Uh, and, and, but he certainly had a good line on who and what they were about. And both of them had been born in slavery. Uh, his mother had uh, lost a, a brother who was an exciting young man who periodically appears in the stories I share with people because that informed what what my dad told me and what I have with appreciation of what this man did uh, enables me to know that he was part of a community. Yeah, it may have been on somebody's plantation. True, he may not have been able to read or write, but there's some qualities that he had that will appear in my interpretation of Shields Green. Uh, my my mother didn't uh, tell me as much, but in her last month of life, she shared with me what she had overheard in, uh, in discourse between her parents. Her mother was of the view that it was a good thing the old man had left because he was mean. He didn't like the way I cooked. Said I cooked the meat too done. Mm-hmm. And my mother heard this and heard my heard her father's response, but it stuck with her that the grandfather she had never seen was somebody very special. Well, where did he go, Ma? Well, he went to the old soldier's home in Dayton. And mm-hmm. she didn't know what date. I asked her, Ohio, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee. Two weeks later, I come back. Was a date in Iowa, Mama? Boy, I told you I don't know. Now you get on out of here. Eventually, I would track him through the the uh, military records maintained by the National Archives and find the grave of Private Samuel Bibb. Company H, 17th United States Color Troop, in the National Cemetery at Dayton, Ohio, which is about 60 miles from where I was born in Cincinnati. And 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 you know that that adventure alone uh, tells me that uh, history is uh, is is. It keeps me alive. 
history is is love. History is is strength. How long, how long is, did it take you to find that information? Um, probably six months because cause I was sort of stumbling around. I didn't know that at, when I started that the National Archives had such extensive records on the military. Once uh-huh. I found, uh, uh, stumbled onto that, it was a matter of uh, sending what information I had to them, uh, plus a check, and um, uh, within, say, two months, they sent me a pension record for uh, a soldier with the same surname, Bib, B-I-B-B. Uh, but the first name didn't seem to figure for some reason or other I, I wasn't satisfied asked my mother could your grandfather's name have been Thomas Bibb which was the name on the record I had and she said uh, she didn't know but she figured that he was probably her grandfather was probably Samuel Bibb Jr. and uh, so I conferred with the National Archives and uh, reapplied and eventually they sent me the pension record of Samuel Bibb. Same company, same regiment. Also, upon being mustered out, went back to Alabama. So these these guys may have been uh, blood kin, or simply they may have been uh, people off the same plantation. Same plantation, yeah. Yeah, because they're they're in... uh, Limestone County, Alabama, there's a place called Bella Mina. It's a tourist attraction because it was a 19th century uh, mansion uh, surrounded by a plantation, and it was owned by the former governor of Alabama. And his name was Bibb. So what year did you you find out? What year was this that you found this information? I uh, nineteen ninety two. Okay. Same year, um, my mother died, and the same year I I got uh, my job pulled out from under me. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Interesting. You mentioned earlier that you faced some racism uh, within an hour of um, returning to the States. Um, what was your first uh, act of resistance or your first activist participation? Do you recall? Um, I only call the first one, but I, I, if you don't mind, I'll focus on the uh, the incident I, I alluded to, which I had been discharged in 1954, it was 1956 when I came to Rochester. Okay. Uh, and alighting from the train, uh, I ran into a red cap who, although he called me boy, I I had to listen because he was older, and that's the way I was brought up. He directed me to put my bags in a locker and walk over to the college I uh, wanted to uh, uh, find. And he said, once you get your room, 
Then you can come back and get your bag, and you save yourself some money, boy. And so I kind of, you know, sucked it up and said, well, yeah, he's right. And uh, when I entered the uh, the office of the director for student housing, uh, you know, and I put on this uh, grin and uh, and my uh, you know my best voice. Oh, hello, this is David Anderson, and I'm here to uh, claim my room and blah blah blah. And the guy turned his back on me, muttering, "I got no room for you." And I said, "Yeah, but see, you don't know. I I registered, and it's all and he he walked away, and mm-hmm. uh, and of course I." was angry enough that I could have hurt him all the time I was uh, in the Air Force, especially on Okinawa, processing the film that that bombers exposed when they were dropping bombs on North Korea. I had never seen the face of the enemy, but right then and there, here he was, (laughs) in Rochester. Right here in Rochester, yeah. But uh, a cleaning lady, in this case, an elderly, not elderly, but a, a mature white woman. When she uh, asked me, "Got no place to stay, huh?" I turned, still angry, but she was wearing an apron, and it could have been my mother's apron. It was that familiar, and I paused long enough to hear her direct me to her neighbor, an African American woman who did, sight unseen, only with that one recommendation, rent me a room in her home Okay, <laughs> for the whole year. But, you know, there were other incidents. In fact, that this, this very college, Rochester Institute of Technology, during the spring, about this time of the year, uh, the fraternities would do their little programs here, there, and yonder. And there was one fraternity for every year I was there, they would put on a minstrel show on the sidewalks, on the public sidewalks outside the college. And uh, and I, I couldn't get a decent uh, part-time job. Yeah, I, I, I cleaned toilets at, at a hospital. Uh, I uh, worked... Uh, uh, Saturday nights into Sunday, Friday nights and Saturday nights into Sunday morning at a uh, at a small restaurant, a, a one man restaurant. I became the second man in there. And I, I learned how to, man, I could fry some eggs and and, and sprout it out of this world. Has Rochester but, changed any since those days? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, in in 1964. There was a major catalyst for change, although people had been working in it for a long time. That catalyst was, of course, the the riots. We 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 blew up here before they did in New York City. Uh, but all along, there had been uh, organized efforts to change things. Um, uh, the handful of African American students in the colleges here. Uh, I knew just about every one of them, and uh, several of us would gather at a home uh, within walking distance of of my college 
which was owned by a man and a wife and their and their little daughter who eventually was persuaded to run for public office. These uh, Friday nights at her home or whatever would do that would include some of the village elders. One man who had crossed Oklahoma in a covered wagon. Another man who had been uh, on the project that created the atom bomb. Uh, he was a research scientist at Eastern Kodak at that company. One of three. There were only three at that time. So that was the Manhattan and, Project, right? That's right. And uh, okay. Dr. William Knox. Look it up. Dr. William so Knox RIT, was... RIT is an engineering school. What was your major? Uh, photography. Illustrative photography. photography. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, I couldn't get it. All my classmates went to jobs uh, upon graduation. I did not. And the best I could do, which wasn't too bad, was to get a graduate assistantship at Syracuse University, about uh, 90 miles uh, east of here. And uh, that and that got me over. But what really saved me was people like uh, the lady who rented the room to me, and uh, and Chan Caldwell's mother. Chan and May Caldwell. Uh, were the family that hosted me for my uh, work with the uh, First Baptist Church at Lincoln Gardens uh, on the 13th and 14th, or yeah, 13th and 14th of this month. And, and they, you mentioned. They were, go ahead. I'm sorry. They they were both born here and were, uh, you know, we be, we became friends, and eventually I was the best man at their wedding, uh, which means that I didn't get her first. <laughs> she was a knockout and very bright. And then, of course, later he would be my best man. You mentioned that uh, losing a job in 1992. Would you care to expand on that? I was uh, an administrator for uh, parent education programs in the Rochester City School District. And uh, I had had a, a very activist background in all the years I'd been here uh, and would try to infuse into parents not only, you know, how to change diapers and stuff and how to come to uh, parent-teacher association meetings, but also how to advocate for better conditions and to utilize uh the history that had been made by people that came before them to bolster their approaches to whatever the issues were. And uh, I was getting good results. In fact, uh, using an uh, art project uh, as, a, as, a, as an organizing principle, we, we put together something called Art is Good for the Heart and Mind. And basically, uh, kids at all levels were encouraged to draw, paint, carve, whatever, uh, something that uh, interpreted for them that concept that art is good for the heart and mind. 
makes you feel good, it makes you act uh, appropriately, and it makes you think. Okay, so um, we started out with maybe 25 kids in the whole district, but over time it reached oh, a couple thousand, I guess. And for and, and parents had several levels of involvement. Number one, a school, the kids from a school could only participate through the parents who were also active with the district-wide parent council and had kids in that school. So that was the motivation for them to go and to engage in conversation. And uh, the uh, Dr. Anders, uh, yeah. could you excuse me for interrupting? Uh, sure. Just become aware that we're out of time here. Okay. Um, and maybe we can get you back at another time. Uh, do you have any closing remarks or any events uh, coming up that you would like our listeners to know about? In Rochester, we have a number of events, and I would hope that it could be uh, something like this is going to occur wherever you and other listeners are, namely that this being the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, it is imperative that we uh, tell the story of the African-American participation in making it happen, as bloody as it was. Nonetheless, it had to happen in order for slavery to be brought to an end, and especially the, do the men, the 200,000 men of color who, after Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, are legally uh, permitted to enter the armed forces and thereby become the margin of Union victory. They don't have equal treatment by any means. There are only a handful of black officers, and, and for the first... Uh, uh, I don't know, 14 months or so, they're not paid on the same basis as white troops. They're not regarded as equal. But nonetheless, they uh, they represented, they acted out a a performance level of manhood that has yet to be equal. And brothers, we got to reclaim that right. So let's tell that story especially this year. Uh, July 18 would be the year that the 54th Massachusetts, hello, Denzel Washington, uh, uh, participated in the uh, siege of Fort Wagner in South Carolina and therefore changed the minds of a whole lot of white soldiers and officers and and also encouraged their brothers in other regiments to Step up, be manly, let's make this thing happen. Whatever the issue is, we got to do it here. Exactly. Do you have uh, contact information? How would our listeners get a hold of you? <laughs> uh, days I can be reached at uh, area code 585-389-5140. And I guess uh, hopefully my computer will... Will accept the more, uh, and that is D as in David, A N D E R S, numeral eight at 
N A Z dot E D U. Danders eight at NAS dot E D U. Okay, great. Uh, Dr. Anderson, I want to thank you for um a great performance and, and also being our guest here on the Guest of Freedom. Uh, and again, maybe we can have you back at a later date uh, to take up some subjects that we could not fully elucidate this after our okay. evening. Well, and, thank uh, you very much for contacting me and allowing me to be with you. And uh, go well, brother. Great. Have a great evening. Okay. All right. uh, that's it, folks. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host here on the Guest of Freedom. Our producer is historian and author Leslie Gist, that's G-I-S-T, and uh, we shall see you at a future date. Thank you.